Hello, welcome to Voice Club. Welcome to Bristol, where I'm recording this introduction. This was a conversation actually that was recorded at Beyond Psychedelics in Prague between myself, Tim Adelin, Melissa Warner and Matthew Johnson. Two fantastic people who um, I'm really honoured to have been able to record anything with at all. I've got quite a bit more coming with Melissa actually. She has a wonderful conversation with Rick Doblin. Uh, but perhaps it's best if I introduce uh, the two of these guys uh, to you. First of all, Matthew. Matthew is a PhD and Associate Professor of Psychiatry at Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine and a leading expert on the effects of psychedelics and, and really a leading expert. He's one of those people that's published so much, it's like how many rungs above the average. He's, he's right at the top, you know. Um, really uh, fantastic energy about him as well. Really open guy, really enjoyed meeting him. Thank you, Matthew, for s spending the time again. Um, Melissa is... Very interesting as well, she's a co-founder of the Australian Psychedelic Society, board member of PRISM, which is the Australian equivalent to MAPS. Uh, it stands for Psychedelic Research in Science and Medicine. So really check out what PRISM are doing, I think it's important moving forward. Without further ado then, I bring you Melissa Warner and Matthew Johnson. Matthew is an associate professor at John Hopkins School of Medicine in the USA and he's been a pioneer of the research into addiction with the treatment of psilocybin and also profiling the nature of mystical states or peak experience. And I guess studying addiction, studying the alteration of consciousness through things like psychedelics is a, is a way of studying consciousness. And I'm quite curious to know what is it that led you to have an interest in the study of consciousness? Oh, great question. Great question, Melissa. Um, I can come at, at that from a number of different angles. One angle is that I just have a great interest in the effects of drugs really across all drug classes, whether we're talking about, you know, caffeine or cocaine or, or psilocybin, alcohol, you name it. And I'm a, an experimental psychologist and really with a strong emphasis on behavior and my kind of core foundation, even though I kind of see these as schools of thought as tools in the toolbox, but one of my core foundations is as a behavioral psychologist. So I, I kind of think, you know, if you're interested in drugs and behavior, how could you not be interested in psychedelics? And I think in, in, in a sense, I, I think consciousness and, and behavior are two sides of the same coin. Behavior over the time reflects consciousness. And so, um, some of the effects of psychedelics are so profound and are in the domain of what people call consciousness, even though that, you know, just the concept itself is difficult to deal with because, you know, people use definitions for um, what consciousness is, but it, these strong alterations in subjective experience, it's just not uncommon for people to have an experience on a psychedelic where they say they could never put it into words and that it has profound changes in the way they think and behave. If you're a psychologist, how could you not be interested mm. in that? You know? Yeah, I mean, I think there's no better way to study the nature of consciousness than the alteration of it. Yeah. Um, and I, I guess the other thing I, I really liked what you said there was tools in the toolbox. So I guess that is the tools to alter consciousness from undesirable states mm -hmm. and there is an array of tools 
So psychedelics are not the only tool yeah. in the toolbox. And what are, what are the conditions that we're trying to alter in your research? Um, so uh, in terms of problems or issues that we're trying to help people with, um, so one is people dealing with cancer, um, severe depression or anxiety or both, which is common in uh, cancer and other uh, potentially terminal disorders. So we're very interested in that. We conducted a very promising trial and published it uh, about a year ago, um, hoping to do a much larger study that might, with colleagues at a number of sites, that would gain approval for the, you know, non-research, just straight-up therapeutic use of psilocybin. And then uh, another one, uh, the other major therapeutic area that we're looking at is in the treatment of addiction. Uh, specifically cigarette smoking, people who have tried multiple times to quit and have not been mm. able to. Um, but I should say also the, the foundation of our work and the initial studies that our, our group has done at Johns Hopkins or in people without any kind of diagnosable disorders. But of course, we're all human beings and there's always things that can be improved. The, the betterment of well people, the kind of, um, if you would, you know, self-actualization, uh, positive psychology, you know, in that spirit, I think our original research with those healthy normals, we're seeing some, the basic phenomena that we observe in those, we see them in these therapeutic populations, and in fact, we see mechanistically similarities, such as the important mediating role of the mystical experience, the certain type of subjective experience after taking psilocybin, not just taking psilocybin. So it's predictive of better outcomes for just regular old people, healthy people, mm. um, reporting improvements in their life and their attitudes and behaviors, but also mystical experience being tied to more likely being um, still abstinent from smoking months down the road after trying to quit and also having less anxiety and depression yeah so much so much to go with there and I, and I just want to there's a theme that i sort of observed there with end of life anxiety addiction there's, there's a move, sense of movement there's a there's a um a shift in someone's life that is occurring mm -hmm. and it's a matter of trying to deal with that whereas addiction is, is being stuck somewhere mm -hmm. So there's something about uh, a dehabituation, would you say? Yeah, I I think that I think actually dehabituation is a great term. In fact, that that that's similar to some of the language that that Tim Leary used in talking about these agents, which I think we we should return to. I'm interested in you know really looking at these effects as um, as learning trials, as conditioning. I think there's something like dehabituation uh, that's going on but I would say I, I sort of hold that as, as going on not just with the addiction treatment but also with with the cancer um, distress and anxiety and presumably with the research that the Imperial group published with you know, straight-up depression patients you know outside of a cancer context and we're currently doing a pilot study with straight-up depression patients right now but I think that you know, yes, it's a, sh a big shift in their life that kind of got them, you know, the diagnosis of cancer that got them to this place, but I think they too are stuck. And so whether you're stuck, you're, you're sort of um, stuck in this narrow pattern of behavior when it comes to addiction, um, 
you know, I'm a smoker. Oh gosh, I've relapsed again. I've tried a million times. I'm never going to be successful. I'm just a smoker, you know, being stuck in this loop or in how you're dealing with cancer. Like I deserve this, you know, why me? You know, this is this great punishment. I, I'm, you know, some people, you know, come in think, you know, holding this kind of judgment that God is punishing them or, or just some other kind of narrative. For, for people that medically can have a, right now a very full life, they're not having a full life, not because of the straight up medical consequences of their cancer, but because of that narrow thinking that it's the cancer diagnosis has led them to. So I view that as very similar between, you know, drug addictions or this sort of addiction to thinking of, you, of yourself, your life in this certain way. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. A negative self-story. Exactly. It's just a, a, a repeating thing that, that someone can't really get out of. And it's such a phenomenally restrictive thing as well. Like it's, it's a real affectation to be in that place. You know, mm -hmm. you're, really, you're really contending with it. So, so here, I'm going to scramble around here at, at a question, but, but it's to do with mystical experience and to do with the fact that we know that when the mystical experience does occur in these therapeutic sessions, that is correlated with much better outcomes, which is really, really fascinating. And you could talk about it from so many different ways, but I just, I'd be really interested to hear your thoughts on how you've recognized your patients be able to set like what kind of story can they move towards? You know, is there a, is there a, a resetting of some some underlying goal that happens? It's kind of a breakthrough from the negative self story, open to the mm -hmm. world or open to a different way you can be in it. There's a breakthrough that kind of happens there, and I, yeah. I'm particularly interested in for people who might not have had psychedelics, right, and who m might not have access to them. Mm -hmm. I'm interested in how we might describe what it feels like to imagine how to be in a different way and that kind of acts in some unconscious and really fundamental way as like a, a new landscape you can live in and be part of you know mm -hmm. i know i'm throwing things at you here but could you talk to could you talk to how someone who who might not have had a mystical experience before could grip onto uh, how their whole conception of themselves mm -hmm. and what it is to feel like to be then can change sure I think a good analogy, which is very salient for me right now, being in the Czech Republic um, from the United States, is travel. Um, and, and Michael Pollan, I believe, makes this point in his, his recent book about psychedelics. I, I think it's a great point, a uh, great analogy. Travel introduces you. It makes the million things that you're habituated to in life that you, you don't even recognize their influence Absolutely. and all of a sudden you're aware of them like I don't know how to open this door like I don't know how that like this you know appliance works you know it's like and you know you take a, a second to figure it out and just you know like um or if you're in London and everyone's going up on the left side of the stairwell just right. like when they're driving it's like right. you notice these things and you just you don't notice that when you're you're back home everyone's just doing their thing and you are reminded of how much of life and circumstances that we just skip over. That we rely on heuristics, and the older we are as human beings, the more we rely on these heuristics. And that's important in that those heuristics are part of wisdom that hopefully we develop yes. over time, but it can also lock us in a certain way of 
thinking and not even recognizing just that initial recognition that there is another way and i think some of the most dramatic experiences are, are like that where um what they kind of break through to might differ for the individual whether that be more connection with their family uh more of a perspective of other people in their lives um more of a sympathetic view of themselves a lot of people they would take far more compassion on someone else if if they were from an external right. perspective right or, or sometimes we've had many p patients in various studies returning to things that they did they say yeah i wrote you know a 50 year old woman said uh, or you know like uh i was really into poetry in college i haven't written poetry in decades and they're like i love poetry why am i writing poetry so they start writing poetry again you know um yeah, it's 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 very interesting. Melissa, do you have So yeah, themes of the depituation of the mind, of allowing people to enter transition into their lives. Uh, I'm curious about the, the other tools in the toolbox and how your research into meditation relates to psychedelics. Mm -hmm. Because meditation is another way of dehabituating the mind's practice and has been reliably shown to have some similar effects in the brain to psychedelics. And, but I'm curious about how these two can combine. Mm -hmm. Because it, you know, meditation is hard, particularly for somebody who is suffering from mental illness or who is suffering from addiction. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a practice that you have to curate over a, a decent amount of time mm -hmm. to be able to get the rewards out of. Mm -hmm. And what, 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 I know you have been doing research into the combination of using yeah. psilocybin with meditation and with experienced meditators, is that correct? We've finished and published a study with novice meditators, 75 folks that, um, the type of folks like a lot of people say, oh, I've always kind of been interested and I've tried a few times over the years and I, I can never quite stick to mm. it. But it's even better, see, this yeah. reveals more. And, and we're, um, uh, we haven't finished it yet, but we've been working with in this new study, long-term meditators, people with you know, any number of, you know, some you know, five, uh, 10,000 hours of meditation over their lifetime, sort of looking at a broad number of questions of how that might impact their current practice, whether they get more out of their practice. And on all of these questions, we, of course, look at both sides of the coin. Maybe, they're, maybe it hurts their practice, uh, these types of things. In the novice meditators, something we can speak to, you know, the results of, we saw a clear signal of, of an additive effect on various measures such as um, altruism, improvements in, in quality of life, engagement in spiritual practices, and sort of reaping the benefits of spiritual practice. We essentially found that whether you had um, sort of a really heavy dose of spiritual practice support, so having, you know, not just having the psilocybin uh, session, and not just having kind of our standard, you know, what we think is minimal for safety, preparation and then follow-up, integration for this high support group that we included in, in this study these these people had extra integration sessions and they they were able to do something really cool um, that we haven't done in other studies we actually had our subjects formally get together in discussion groups and share their experiences with each other mm. and have mutual support what were some of the experiences of the participants um well, there were a, a large number of participants. Uh, really, the, I would say in terms of the, the core experience, um, it was ve you know, very similar to our other research, you know.
high rates of mystical experience defined by these criteria of a, a strong sense of unity, a sense of positivity. There's a sort of a noetic quality, which refers to some self-revealing quality. Somehow it's more real than real, and a sense that it's, the experience is so profound, it's, it's beyond words. And we actually found that one group had just a kind of a trivial dose of psilocybin, kind of serving as a, as a placebo. And, you know, getting just, even if you're in the standard support group, without that kind of extra heavy dose of integration and the um, discussion groups, that, you know, just having the high dose of psilocybin, even without that extra support, you know, you, that was what was, resp was responsible for having high rates of mystical experience. But then in terms of the fruits of that mystical experience, how do, you know, the question, how does that mystical experience translate into improvements in your life? So we don't want um, just altered states, we want altered traits. Yes, and this is very much in the spirit of, of Houston Smith, who talked about um, and wrote about this, that, you know, mystical experiences are one thing, but, you know, spiritual experiences are one, I mean, but then the, the spiritual, spiritual life. Um, and me with meditation, I, I know that it's a, it's a bit of a hot word for some people, particularly mm -hmm. if they're from a scientific background. Um, and so with, with meditation, I'm curious to know, what were the so measures in, what kind of cog cognitive change were you looking for? Things like, you know, non-reactivity, acceptance, a sense of, of meaning, mm -hmm. things like that. Uh, just to break down the word, what spiritual is referring to here. Uh, and the other thing was, is in, in this group, so I'm curious because meditation has a, an ability to uh, allow you to navigate your mind with greater ease. Was there a difference in the meditative group with their ease of the psilocybin experience? Yes, yes. Um, so make sure I understand you, you correctly. Did they, well, I'll say in our, our our long-term meditators, folks, have said that they can slip into different states more readily. And, and there's some variation. Some folks uh, say that they can get more out of a shorter time of meditation now. And interestingly, I think some folks seem to take their meditation less compulsively. So in one sense, this might sound odd, but one can kind of think of meditation as being stuck in a rut. I mean, there are folks that can, you know, be, you know, if you don't get your one hour or sometimes several hours of meditation in every day, you feel like you've, you've failed, you know, and, you know, not allowing, cutting yourself any slack, you know, like you've, you know, you're traveling or something and, you so know, flexibility. So fle more flexibility. Thank you. That's a great way to put it. More flexibility in their meditative practice. And, and the probably in the other, other areas of their life too. Yeah. In some sense of a, a common, uh, story we've heard is that just an increased recognition that it's not about the practice it's about where you get with the practice mm. and so you know um you may not need that practice to that degree all the time yeah it requires an engagement with the world mm -hmm. i think that's another interesting thing about psychedelics and the mystical experience or the peak experience is this sense of, of awe mm -hmm. and wonder at the mm -hmm. world which participants frequently report yeah and this orientation away from the internal self to the the wonder and the majesty of what is out there yeah and an engagement with that can you speak to that effect yeah that and in fact i'd, I'd point folks to a, a a recent uh what's soon to be published paper by our colleague at the university of alabama birmingham peter hendricks has a a, a paper titled i think awe as antidote mm. you know 
postulating that awe is maybe an under-recognized construct at play here with these you know, therapeutic and the betterment of well people effects of, of psychedelics. This, this idea of um, through you know, pharmacology or, or whatever other means confronted with something so much larger than oneself that the, that the sense of self and sort of the problems that can come along with the sense of self-identity can be helped. And whether that's kind of staring out before the Grand Canyon or, or maybe you know, 30 mil, having 30 milligrams of uh, psilocybin running through your, your blood um, can lead to these profound experiences of, of awe. So I think, that's, I think there's a lot to that. Yeah, and, and that's closely methods. associated with the mystical experience. And you've used the term peak experience a few times, and I should say, those may be completely synonymous concepts that are described slightly different. That's kind of my working assumption, or they might be slightly different shades of the same phenomenon. Yeah, I, I feel that they're the same thing too, just uh, defined by different groups or different people. Uh, Abraham Maslow defining peak experience, mm -hmm. and I believe mystical experience was defined along with like the Walter Hanke uh, mm -hmm. experiment using psilocybin in, uh, um, mm -hmm. earlier before the, the laws mm -hmm. were changed. And so earlier folks, Walter Space and, and even William James, you know, were um, kind of focused on this construct but yeah um the in, in in terms of really uh making progress and understanding with psychedelics yeah wally pankey and and bill richards in our group made great contributions there mm. yeah i mean we don't have too long left um so perhaps my final question would just be so what drives you to be interested in doing this mm -hmm. you know and i'll leave that broad yeah, I can, I can come at that in a number of directions. I guess from one perspective, I, I kind of think, um, you know, what is meaningful in my life? Like, what am I? I'm only going to be around a little while. Right. I mean, I'm, I'm 44. Like, uh, you know, I, don't, I might be half, I might be You're far. You're sprightly 44, I have to say. <laughs> I Jesus know, most, Christ. Some folks take me for my 20s, and <laughs> I, I, I joke that I, I finished college when I was 10 years old, but no, yeah. I'm, <laughs> nothing, nothing like that. But, you know, you know, and I'm involved with a variety of research topics beyond psychedelics, but I really see psychedelics as something that can, um, doing this work can really contribute to the, to the health of humanity. I think we're getting to... And, let me preface it by saying I think there can be a danger in, in speaking too largely about this. Yes. And it's not a panacea, and, it's, and I'm certainly not saying everyone should use psychedelics, but we are dealing with constructs that I think are, are really important. Um, and, and psychedelics is perhaps just one way, but the topics that we're dealing with, this sense of unity that we are all ultimately a part of something that is beyond ourselves and that we are all ultimately completely interconnected. Like we're all ultimately on this little rock in the middle of space and we're all we have of right. each other. If we don't really get that broadly, you know, our species is in trouble. And, right. and I think we're at the time in the history of humanity where, and I don't know whether it's the next five years, 20 years, 100 years, but it's a blink of an eye in terms of history, but we're there right now and you know being someone who ha has training in behavior and pharmacology 
studying psychedelics is one way that I can contribute to something that I think is mean, uh, meaningful in terms of hopefully helping us get through this period. I think we're, we're either going to make it or not. You know, right. are we going to be around in a thousand years? And what's, what's the nature of... I know this is a really big picture, no, but, no, no, and no, I don't no, want no. to totally say this is the only thing in that category. In fact, it's, it may be ultimately be a minor player, but it's something, it's an area that I can contribute to in that larger picture. No, absolutely. Well, I mean, psilocybin, the, the compound is obviously a, a minor player in, at some level, but, but the mystical experience, the feeling of connection, right, opening up to something yes. new, okay, seeing the world in a way you didn't see it before, in a way that, that has at least the belief that there is a good that you can be a part of with it, that there's a life there, that there's a vitality you can tap into, that that same sense of vitality is, is ultimately what grounds relationships between all individuals of any group. You know, I, th I think it, it is, you know, there's, a, there's uh, many different ways to, to open what you are authentically to a real relationship with someone else and the world and um, psychedelics administered properly with the due amount of, uh, of, of, of serious uh, intent, you know, and depends what we mean by serious, uh, seem to be a way that certain people can get there and then also mm -hmm. aim their lives at, at helping others to participate in that same kind of sharing and experience. Yeah. Um, but I, I know we do have to wrap up. Uh, Melissa, thank you so much for being with me doing this um thank you tim yeah well and, and thanks to both you melissa yes. and tim and matthew as well great. so thank you very much everybody for being here we'll, we'll see you soon cool thank you for listening if you'd like to hear more of these conversations and to stay in touch about events planned later this year in Melbourne, please do like the Facebook page, follow Voice Club underscore on Twitter, subscribe on YouTube and most other places you usually listen to your podcasts. Best of all, sign up to the mailing list via the connect tab at voiceclub.com. And if you found this valuable, please consider sharing or leaving a review. You can also support Voice Club on Patreon with a monthly subscription, links to which can be found on voiceclub.com and in the description from the 7th of May 2018 onwards. There is so much more to come. We'll see you then.